We're going to be looking at Jonah, and I want you to open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3 and 4. We're going to be finishing it off, this wonderful little book that seems to be able to pack so much into it. This book that is both elegant and punchy. This book that has no wasted words and uh, calls us to think about who we are and what we're doing. This book that not only is about a prophet called Jonah, but is about so much more. And let's just ask that God will be with us now and we'll be attentive. Our great God, we thank you that you are always with us. In you we live and move and have our being, but we, always, uh, but we don't always attend to you. We don't always notice you. We don't always concentrate. But now as we come to think about this prophet of yours called Jonah, uh, a prophet that Jesus likened himself to, we ask that you'll quieten our hearts uh, in this last week of university. Please help us to focus on uh, more than uh, what will get us through an exam, but something that will help us to live. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the most self-help books, or the rationale behind most self-help books that you'll find either in news agents or uh, in uh, department stores or wherever you find self-help help books, I think they're normally at the cash register, aren't they? At the, the near Who Weekly and all that old stuff. There's a basic assumption. That is, you want to be successful. You want to succeed in something. So it might be how to be successful in budgeting or how to be successful in slimming or something like that. These self-help books all sort of have that as their basic presupposition. We want to be successful about something. Well, one of the surprising things, or probably the most surprising things about Jonah is that he does not want to be successful. Normally when we read Jonah, we, we get the impression that maybe he was scared, maybe he was afraid of going to Nineveh, maybe he was afraid of preaching judgment to this warlike people, but we would be wrong. Uh, we saw that Jonah last week just went as far away from God as he possibly could. He wanted to get away from God's call to go to Nineveh and to preach judgment against them. He went to, to Tarshish. Well, he was on the way to Tarshish and, and in a most extraordinary way, God brought him back to the task, to the job and saved him from his rebellion. We could say by this stage that Jonah's had a gut full of fish and chips, but there would be too many puns in that to be uh, worthwhile saying. Uh, it might be more true to say that, uh, well, uh, the fish had had a gut full of Jonah. But whatever it is, Jonah stops off for a shower before going off to Nineveh, before he sets off for the five-week journey. We also need to remember that Jonah, the name itself means something. It means dove. Remember last week we talked about how Israel was compared to a dove as well. Uh, in Hosea chapter 7 verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, that's Israel is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now calling to Assyria. And I wanted to suggest that underneath the many-layered story of Jonah, there's also the, uh, the other story that's being told through Jonah's life, through this episode, which is the life of Israel. And I also suggested that part of what we need to listen for as well is, is echoes of the story of the prodigal son. Now the reason for that is not that Jesus necessarily went, gee, the story of Jonah would be great to model a parable on. You know, I'm running out of material. 
Rather, Jesus is telling the story of Israel in so many of his parables and the life of Jonah is also telling the story of Israel. Uh, When it says in Luke's Gospel that um, the law and the prophets and the Psalms are about me, uh, that has meaning only because Jesus is about Israel. The law and the prophets... If anybody has a phone that hasn't been turned off yet, can I suggest that you do that now? It would be very rude to have it on. And, uh, that Jesus is living out the story of Israel and so his stories, his parables, are also about Israel. That's why we have all of these, these uh, similarities that go on. Well, let's get into this story, this wonderful story, this wonderfully disturbing story in chapters 3 and 4. And in verses 1 and 3, we have the recommissioning and obedience of Jonah. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the uh, the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. So God's word comes to Jonah and we're told again it came a second time. Jonah is the prophet of a second chance and we've got to make sure that we take notice of how he responds to this second chance because this prophet is probably the most disobedient prophet in all of the history of Israel. Yes, there are other people who are called to do things who, who recoiled from them. Moses, who was called to lead God's people, said, look, you know, I, I stutter, I'm not, a good, I'm not a good speaker, get somebody else. Jeremiah said, I'm too young. But when God leaned on them a little bit, both of them agreed to do the job that God had called them to do. There is only one prophet who runs away from the task. And that's Jonah. Here's the prophet who has experienced judgment and yet the Lord has relented and shown him mercy and compassion and is recommissioning him. The Lord speaks to Jonah a second time. This man has a second chance to be obedient, to go to Nineveh, the great city, and to preach against it, to preach judgment. And so we hold our breath. And then in verse 3, we're told that Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. We're also told something about Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh is not only evil, it's also very big. Uh, not only do we have Nineveh defined by the walls of Nineveh, but outside uh, Nineveh is basically near the, the modern site of Mosul. We heard about that in the uh, in the war, didn't we? Mosul, which is in the north north of Iraq. Um, uh, that this is a huge city. This is no village. In 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 the ancient Near East, when a big place numbered a few thousand, this has got about a hundred and ten thousand people in it. It is an enormous expanse of land. Jonah is going to preach in Nineveh and is going to preach judgment. Jonah is recommissioned in the same way that Israel is recommissioned. Israel has been in exile. Israel was given the task of being a light to the Gentiles. Israel was given the task of leading such a good life living under such good laws that the nations would see how she lived 
and would say, we want to know the God that, who gave you these good laws, who has caused you to live in this way, who blesses you in this way. Israel is recommissioned after the exile and the prodigal son comes home and is given the family's signet ring, is given new sandals and given a cloak to cover uh, just uh, what a disaster his life has become. He is reinstated. And so we start all over again. We have in verses 4 to 9 a surprising response. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Here's Jonah. He comes and he stands at the heart of Nineveh and he preaches judgment. Forty more days and judgment will fall upon Nineveh. I wonder how he preached it. I suspect that he is a very reluctant prophet. He's already shown that. Does he preach it with passion? Maybe he does. Maybe he just delights in the whole idea of just pouring heaps of, of, of scorn on these people. You know, you think you're so big, you've got such a big flashy city, but God knows what you're like and you are going to come under judgment. You've got 40 more days, a little over a month. Or did he go from main intersection to main intersection and just sort of slightly raise his voice a little bit? Um, people wondered who he was, dressed in such a strange fashion. Uh, not the same, uh, you know, strange accent. Did he just go through the motions? Jonah's used to going through the motions. He's been through most of a fish at this stage, so he, he knows what it's like. Uh, did he just sort of preach his, not his heart out, but just preached a little bit and then just walked off out of the city? He'd done his job. He'd been obedient. He'd performed the task that God had expected him to do. It was over. He'd done it. God could expect no more from him. Well, what is surprising is what happens in Nineveh. The people either hear this strong, hot message or this soft, rather ineffective message in so many ways. But what happens is extraordinary. They believe God. There is another person in the Bible who's described in those ways. It's the father of Israel, Abraham. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, it says, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I think we're meant to see a comparison between the father of Israel and, the, and in a sense, the forefather of Jonah and the Ninevites, the evil, wicked empire. Suddenly they have a response that is exactly the same. And, and they believe. 
they repent. They do what they did in those days. They put on sackcloth. What does that mean? Well, well, think of a really big potato sack. Think of a really big hessian bag. What they basically did was they emptied the potatoes out or lentils or whatever else they put in there. They cut two holes in the side, cut out something for the neck and shoved it on. You know, there's no Armani suits to be seen in Nineveh. Uh, there's nothing from the latest fashion. All you see, or the latest fashion at least, is hessian fashion, sackcloth fashion. The king hears about what's going on. And all of a sudden he's struck to the heart as well. He believes the message. And he proclaims that no animal, no human being should eat or drink but should cry out to God. See, that's the thing about not feeding the animals or or giving them water. They're going to cry. And there's something of... They're going to be an example as well and join in the judgment of understanding what it means to live under the judgment and cry out to God and maybe God will be gracious. Maybe he will be compassionate. It is an extraordinary thing what we're seeing here. But those sorts of things do happen. How long did it last for? Well, we don't know, but we do know in about 60 more years uh, we have a very uh, warlike king that uh, takes over Assyria and they come down and they sweep through Israel and they take it over. Maybe it didn't stick for very long. There's another story of a city that had quite a, quite a big change of heart. It's the city of Sydney back in 1959. I was alive then, but I don't remember what went on, okay? So uh, I'm telling you from, uh, from other reports. 59 Crusade, Billy Graham came here. Things began to happen and it was extraordinary. I'm told that on buses and trams, people just started gossiping about God and the gospel, about what was happening over at the showground. And every night, more and more people were coming. And the organisers of the crusade were begging Billy Graham not to go to New Zealand. People in New Zealand were begging Billy Graham to leave Australia, to leave Sydney. But the reason was because there was this this strange thing that was happening where people just seemed to be affected, changed. Now, I lived in the era immediately after that where I saw some of the impact. Uh, At Epping Presbyterian Church, we had over 500 kids in Sunday school. Uh, The road outside our church on a Sunday morning was just basically one big moving car lot as people as parents dropped off their kids. A lot of parents didn't go to church, but there were a lot of kids that were going to Sunday school. Uh, What sort of lasting impact did it have? Well, you live in the lasting impact. Not much, in lots of ways. But there are a number of people who were converted in the 59th Crusade that have a huge influence in Sydney today. Something like that, I think, happened in Nineveh. Something that held on for a while. Something that made people change. To think about who they were and what they did. To think about what it meant to be a human being again. To stop doing violence and stop doing wickedness. The king says, who knows? 
God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. If the response of the Ninevites is surprising, the response of the Lord is also surprising. And we see that in verse 10. When the Lord God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. God sees their response, how they turned and repented of their evil. In their sackcloth, the king sitting in his ashes, having put off his royal robes, degrading himself, having a sense of who he was, having a perspective that he'd lost. And God does something extraordinary. He forgives. He relents. He will not send judgment upon Nineveh. But let me tell you, the most surprising response in all of this is not the response of the Ninevites turning and repenting. It's not God relenting and forgiving. It's Jonah. Have a look in verse 1 of chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. That's a nice way of saying that Jonah was completely spat off. Uh, It's difficult to be able to fit into words exactly what is going on. We're told that God's forgiveness and relenting displeased Jonah exceedingly. Now, what right did Jonah have to be angry? God's going to ask him that question. Some of the commentaries have said, well, the reason why Jonah really was angry was because because God had relented, then Jonah was going to be demonstrably shown to be a false prophet. You know, he, he had proclaimed judgment upon Nineveh. He was going to fall on them in 40 days. And as the time ticked on, as the month went, and a little bit more, it was going to become obvious that what Jonah said wasn't true. I I think that's balderdash. I don't think that's what's going on at all. In fact, we're told what the problem is a bit later on. That could almost be forgivable. Well, that almost is a nonsensical statement in the light of Jonah, isn't it? God seems to be able to forgive so much. But we're going to see into the heart of this prophet. And I, I hope we will be shocked, disturbed, I don't think that Jonah might be shown to be a false prophet really holds any water. Many of the prophecies of judgment in the Old Testament, while not stating themselves in this way, are conditional. They, God is really saying, look, if you don't turn from your ways, you are going to be destroyed. God does not desire the death of any man, but that everyone should turn from their sin and have life. That's not really the reason. The reason is far more dark and insidious. Uh, Mr. Dove, this symbolic life of Israel, has at its heart, at his heart, something far darker. Jonah in every respect is, is no different from the Ninevites. Here is a man who has received incredible grace. We could say of him that he deserved to be a pile of fish poo at the bottom of the ocean, at the bottom of the Mediterranean. 
And yet God saw that he turned from his evil ways and God relented of the disaster that he had sent upon Jonah. Jonah is in every respect no different from the Ninevites except for in nationality. But Jonah, Jonah is so angry at God. And we're told what's going on in verse 2. The reason for Jonah being greatly displeased and angry at God, the reason why Jonah disobeyed, the reason why he went off to the west and not to the east, the reason why he took a ship and didn't start walking, the reason why he did that is told for us in verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Well, that's certainly something to get stuck into God about, isn't it? He didn't mind God being gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love when it came to uh, uh, getting the fish to throw him up on dry land. But he certainly has a problem with God being gracious and compassionate and slow to anger when it comes to Nineveh. The strange thing is that hidden within that statement about God is, is, is again, the story of Israel. Jonah is quoting something from, from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Exodus is all about, in one sense, the very establishment of Israel as a nation. Israel comes out of slavery, comes to Sinai, Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments and a whole lot of other instructions and Israel's down there. Basically, they can have a rest after a fairly long walk through the desert. And what do they do? Well, they come to air on Moses' brother and they say, look, um, can you make a God for us? Aaron goes, sure. You know, they've already had the Ten Commandments delivered to them. They know what God wants and what God doesn't want up to a certain point. They haven't got all the details about maybe the tabernacle and all the other stuff that's going to go on. But in terms of the Ten Commandments, they've got a fair idea about make no graven image. But Aaron goes, sure, how about everybody contribute something to it? It would be good that everybody lent a hand, you know, everybody had a piece of this. Uh, everybody, how about you all donate a gold earring? Yeah, so they do that, they, they melt it down, they throw it into the ground and up pops a golden calf. Well, it doesn't pop up, it's sort of... You know, they, they cut it away and polish it up a little bit. It's not like it's living or anything like that. It's as dead as gold is. And then they bow down and worship and Aaron says, you know, this is the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Again, we, we, we hear this impeccable theology, but, but the practice falls short of the theology. And you, you become what you worship, so they get up and then they have an orgy. They, they're banging away at each other. That's what they're doing. There's nothing subtle about it. Moses is up with God and he hears something and God says, something's going on down in the camp. And Moses says, well, it sounds like fighting. I wasn't fighting. It's the furthest thing from fighting. It was rebellion. Absolute rebellion. Moses goes down and sees what's going on and God says, get out of the way. I'm going to absolute... I'm, I, I've, had, I've had enough of this, people. Moses goes, no, 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 no. Don't do that. If you do that, 
the Egyptians and everybody else will hear what you have done to Israel. And they'll say, you see, the Lord brought the Israelites out into the desert so he could destroy them. You won't be glorified through this. Your name won't be made great. Blot me out of your book of life. God says, no, I won't do that. Okay, I'll relent. They will be judged, but they won't be completely destroyed. Moses says, I want to see you. I want to, I want to know more of you. This heart of Moses that wants to know God. And God passes in front of Moses. Doesn't see the face of God, but, but hears the name of God. And here, and he passed in front of Moses, this is uh, Exodus 34, verse 6, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, listen to the story of Jonah again. Jonah is using the name of God that God declared when Israel... Israel completely rebels against God and Israel receives this tremendous grace of being allowed to continue as his people. This name that that, that is revealed out of sin and rebellion, Jonah now throws back in God's face and like an anti-Moses says, look, get stuck into these people. Just zot them off the face of the earth. Do something. And if we stand back briefly, we find ourselves with this shocking comparison. Jonah is incensed that God is gracious. That's why the name of the talk, grace, something to be angry about. It's inconceivable, isn't it? Well, not for Jonah. It all depends on who you're gracious to. Jonah doesn't mind God being gracious, but he should be choosy about who he's gracious to. Not gracious to wogs. He should be gracious to Israelites. That's okay. But not to other people, not, not, not to the Ninevites. Sinners have got to have a pedigree. You've got to have papers to get forgiven. Just can't, God just can't go around forgiving anybody. Where's his standards? Well, Jonah spits the dummy completely in verse 3. Now, now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is far better for me to die than to live. It's not the last time that this petulant prophet is going to say this. Jonah may be a prophet who enjoyed talking about and prophesying the extension of the borders of Israel, but here is not a guy who is mature. Jonah has a very low EQ. Okay, in terms of emotional quotient, it's very, very low. Oh, it'd be better for me to die. I prefer to die. I don't want to go on uh, with this happening. I don't want to go on if you're going to be gracious all the time. Jonah would prefer to be dead. He's already shown that he's happy to be dead rather than go to Nineveh. But what God does is he enrolls Jonah in the school of godliness in verses 4 to 11. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? 
Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do. He said, I'm angry enough to die. Well, the logic there is, uh, you know, you just have to say, well, it's obvious, isn't it? Uh, God begins the lesson by asking Jonah if he has any right to be angry and then he gives a living parable. Jonah is going to experience a parable. Jonah is, is enrolled in the school of godliness and what's about to happen is a parallel to what's been go- going on at Nineveh. Jonah goes to the east of the city. He, he's still hoping that God may be... Yeah, he might see a bit more of what's going on in Nineveh and sort of, you know, the fact-finding mission and go, well, I'll, I'll withdraw the forgiveness, I'll withdraw the grace. And in 40 more days, uh, then all of a sudden, Jonah's going to be the witness of this, this marvellous fireworks of judgment. He's going to be able to enjoy uh, New Year's Day all over again. It's going to be terrific. It's, he's going to love seeing it. He's built himself a little uh, lean to it. It's not a very good one. I mean, but... But it does something. Well, it doesn't do much at all, really. But what God does is he gives something to Jonah. He provides a vine that grows up. It's miraculous. It grows up fast. It grows up quick. It's got great big leaves on it. Maybe leaves like a a pumpkin plant, a cucumber plant, big leaves. Jonah's there. uh, You know, it's hot outside and he's in his little crappy lean-to, but the vine's over there. He's very happy. Life's all about Jonah for Jonah. Uh, Jonah will be up and down, not because he's a manic depressive and there wasn't enough drugs going around in those days, but simply because life turns on him. God is not at the centre of Jonah's life. Jonah is at the centre of Jonah's life. And when he's got this tiny little bit of comfort, hey, life is good. And as soon as it's withdrawn, he wants to die again. God not only provides the vine, he provides the worm and then he provides a scorching east wind and Jonah is there, he is hot, he is bothered. Who's getting judged now? Well, Jonah is. In God's grace, Jonah is being judged. And he says to God, it would be better for me to die than to live. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well, who probably also cannot tell their left or their right hoof, I suggest. (laughs) But it seems that that didn't need to be said, so I don't know why I said that. Uh, Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah is ready to die for a plant, for his comfort. But he is ready to see a whole city of 120,000 people and cattle 
just zot it off the face of the earth and not even give one, one care, one thought about it. Johnny, you care so much about this vine, though you didn't do anything for it. And you expect me not to care about these Ninevites. I sustain them. I keep them going. Uh, uh, the only reason I'm angry at, with them, uh, at them is because I love them. I made them for something better than this. You do nothing for this vine and when it goes, you're upset. What do you think I'm like? When it comes to Nineveh, and it ends with a, it ends with a question. God ends with a question to Jonah: Should I not be concerned about that great city? And there we leave Jonah. I wonder how we leave him. Do we leave him perched in his crappy lean-to, no longer a dove, but almost crow-like, vulture-like? perched above Nineveh, hoping that the fireworks will start in 40 days? Do we see him thinking, wondering, realising, repenting and walking back to Israel, a changed man, a different man? We don't know. We're left with a question. Jesus left his hearers with a question as well when he told them the story of the prodigal son. You see, in Jonah 1 and 2, we have the younger son who runs away from the father to a far country and eventually finds his lowest point when he lives with the pigs and he desires their food and then comes back and receives forgiveness, grace, mercy and enfolding back into the family. But Jonah, though he has received grace, becomes very much like the older brother in in Jonah 3 and 4. The older brother who sniffs the fatted calf being cooked on the breeze, who hears the story, uh, sorry, hears the music and comes near the house and, and figures out, has a good guess as what's, what's going on and asks a young boy, what's going on? Oh, would well, you, your brother's come back and we're having a celebration. Who, who is incensed, who is so angry he won't go inside and join the party of forgiveness. The father has to come out. I have slaved for you for so many years. I've done everything that you've wanted and you haven't even given me a kid to celebrate with my mates. But when this son of yours, who has wasted all your money on prostitutes and whatever else, comes slinking back here, you forgive him. We had to celebrate. Your brother was dead and is now alive. He was lost and now is found. Didn't we have to celebrate? See, the question comes with both of them. Do you really want to limit God's grace? I mean, isn't there something, isn't there something that is right about this? This is Israel. In the story of the prodigal son, it's Israel being, being like that to sinners, you know, to, to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes. The leaders not wanting to have them get in the kingdom, but Jesus is welcoming them in. 
But the story of Jonah and the difference between the Jews who have got the inside track with God's grace and the Gentiles who are out there and largely don't even know what's going on is repeated again and again in the New Testament. Uh, It is the issue of the Jew and the Gentile that comes up over and over again. The extraordinary thing is God has just got grace so much more than his people expect or want him to have. God's vision, God's love is for the whole world. But Israel or some of Israel seems to want to limit that over and over again. I want to finish on this note. God's people, you, if you're a Christian, we need to be people of grace. Yes, we need to be people of righteousness. Yes, we need to be able to preach judgment. Yes, we need to be able to be taught, we need to be able to talk about God as a God who who we have ignored and turned our back on. Yes, all of that. But the demeanour of Jesus was that yes, there is judgment, but there is so much more. If you turn, you can have life and grace and forgiveness and meaning, understanding what it means to be a human being. You can begin having a life that you never even dreamed of. And God has so much more grace than sometimes we credit him with. I think that when we interact with our non-Christian friends, there's got to be sometimes an unstated but often a stated openness, desire, a sense that they sense from us that if they turn, God's just going to be head over heels, delighting in them joining his family. God has so much grace. We live by it morning, noon and night. It's there before we start the day. We enter into it as we put our feet on the floor. It's already there. It surrounds us. And sometimes I think that Christians have more of an attitude of God's pretty negative really. And we've got to join him in that, as if maybe there's not enough problems in the world to go around. That, that worries us a bit. Instead of this inherent positiveness, this, this sense that God is about with grace, ready to th- throw it all over, the sh- all over the place. Not sort of dealing it out as if sort of, you know, it's his last five cents worth. Last dollar. But that God is just going to be marvellously gracious and already is to us. We are parables of grace to the world. And that should make us live different lives. Have different attitudes. Well, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to go. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you have more grace than we can imagine. You have more love and mercy than we can dare hope for. And in Jesus, it's all there. It's all there, over and over again. Grace upon grace, mercy upon grace, uh, mercy upon mercy. Love that can fill the whole world. And you call us to be like Jesus, full of grace and love, 
and mercy. And that's a big call. Uh, We're so often a bit more negative, but help us to see in him what it means to be your child. May your spirit work in us to make us more like him. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.